Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Pastor Brian. I'm joined again today by Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, today we finally made it to part three in our series on the Trinity. This is the one that everyone's been waiting for because the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity has two basic parts. Last week we talked about the first part, that there's one God. Today we're going to talk about the second part, that this God exists in three persons. Now, this is the confusing one, and this is the stuff that's been debated for thousands of years among Christians, Mm -hmm. among heretics. In fact, to this day, average Christians, a lot of times they explain it with simple metaphors that actually mistakenly spread heresy. So if you're listening today, pay attention, because this lesson is going to help you to get it straight, not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of anyone who might be asking you about the nature of God. They're trying to understand the Trinity, which we get here all the time. People say this all the time. How does it... And for some people, it's sort of a stumbling block, and it's keeping them from really becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a tough one, because this is where... I mean, it's easy to talk about one God, but when you throw in the second part of it, that's where the paradox comes into play. And and so for a lot of people, the it, the paradox isn't worth maintaining. They just want to have some simple thing they can get their mind around, and so kind of like slip into one side or the other. But but the Bible upholds both of those. And if we take the Bible seriously, the way God has revealed Himself in Scripture, then we have to take both of those sides of the paradox seriously. And that's why Christians have uh, always believed in the Trinity. Now, there are some Christians who are listening to this who say, oh, I believe in the Trinity. But I, again, I think if you would just keep listening, because you might find out that you've unknowingly <laughs> spread heresy. Ross, I would admit that even I have done this before. I remember years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I explained the Trinity um, using, using a metaphor of water. Right. H2O, that God right. is like water, H2O, that sometimes he's steam, mm-hmm. sometimes he's um, ice, sometimes he's liquid. And so little did I know that I was promoting a heresy that has long been <laughs> debunked. And so there might be a lot of people out there who's like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop using that let's, metaphor. Let's check, our, let's check our, our analogies and illustrations here for a minute, yeah. Yeah, so no judgment, uh, no judgment, uh, yeah. but let's not be heretics, because yeah. they used to burn those kinds of people <laughs> at the stake. Okay, let's start with this. Here's the first thing that you need to know. The Bible shows God existing in three distinct persons, and that word's important, mm-hmm persons, we're going to get into this some more today. Obviously, the persons of the Trinity are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's get into this. The plurality of the one God is actually anticipated from the very beginning of the Bible. Ross, help us understand that. There's a, there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that give us a hint of this, but it starts right in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where God says, uh, let us make human beings in our image. Okay, God, singular, in the, in the text, mm-hmm. says, let us, plural, make human beings in our image, plural. Same thing in uh, Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. God, singular, says, let us go down and confound their languages, plural. So you have this curious, either it's bad grammar, Mm. 
um, or there's something else going on. And we know from the rest of Scripture, as, as the story unfolds into the New Testament and the coming of Jesus, that really it's, it's a hint forward, a powerful sense of like, oh, this is the direction that the revelation of God is going to take us toward plurality and unity, you know, kind of both going on at the same time. Yeah, and I would say that if that's the only place that Scripture ever talked about the threeness and the oneness of God, then I think we could just say, yeah, maybe it was just grammatical, who knows, but it's clearly not the only place. So, we, you know, I go back and I, I say, this isn't the this isn't the biggest proof text. No, but, it's not. But it, 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 I like how you said it, that it gives us a hint of the direction that the Bible will take us, right? Because right. we see it over and over and over. This idea of the mer- multiple persons of God becomes more clear in the New Testament. So, for example, at the baptism of Jesus, this is a big one, mm-hmm. right? Because, yeah. you know, for Mormons, they would say this is what disproves the idea. This is where the idea of the Trinity doesn't make sense. Because I, th- but I think that's because Mormons don't really understand the Orthodox doctrine of the what Trinity. What the Trinity is really saying, yeah. You know, the baptism of Jesus affirms the doctrine, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't contradict it. Right. It's a big part of it. Matthew chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus comes up out of the water. The heavens are opened. He sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove on him, and then a voice from heaven says, that, you know, this is the Father speaking, this is my dearly son, dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is in the river. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and the voice of the, of the Father speaks from heaven. What's happening in Matthew 3 is that all three persons of the Trinity are present mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. And so, yeah, that would, that would uh, point toward a tritheistic view if we didn't already have what we discussed in the last episode, it, this strong incontrovertible conviction of the Bible that there's only one God. Right. And so we have to understand this, Matthew, in in light of that bigger tapestry and say, well, well, then how do we make sense out of this in light of that prevailing truth? Right. And remember, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying, as, as human beings, finite human beings, we're trying to wrap our mind around, we're trying to wrap our words around the na- the true nature of God that's so clearly revealed throughout all the pages of the Bible, but we but it's there's not one paragraph in the Bible that says, "All right, human beings, here's how we're going to explain mm-hmm. this to you." Right. right. So so this we have to talk about semantics here for a second, Ross. Th- this is why we believe that God encompasses both unity, the oneness part of the definition, and distinction, the threeness mm-hmm. part of the definition. To cover both ideas. We have to talk about the being of God versus the persons of God. Remember, the four words for the Trinity are one being, three persons. So to talk about the unity of God, we talk about the being, his being or his essence. But when it comes to the persons of God, there is somehow a distinction. This is, again, I want to... We're gonna we're gonna just be really vulnerable here, because I remember first reading about this as I was really trying to wrap my mind around this. I had a hard time bringing myself to say that there is a distinction, right, in the personhood Within of the God. person of God. Yeah, and so I want to. It's okay to say this, right, Ross? <clears throat> yes. Like it's we're yeah. saying this is the right way to talk. This is the proper way to talk about it when it comes to the persons of God. There is a distinction. Now, we use this word persons as opposed to beings to capture the idea that Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit interact with each other and with the world, in the in the whole world, right? So we we've mm-hmm. come up with the idea, this word of persons. But Ross, it's not the perfect word. It's not it? a perfect word. The, the challenge is God is infinite. Our language is finite. Every word has limitations. There's a semantic range for each word that says this is what it means or it doesn't mean or it it might mean you know something a little different in your experience than in my experience. And then we have this greater challenge even that you have um, these doctrines are taking shape and being worked out by the early church in the context of two primary languages, Greek in the eastern half of the Roman Empire and Latin in the western half of the Roman Empire, and that that created a, a challenge, because the word persons that we use today to talk about these distinctive personalities, these named um, persons in the, in the Bible, that comes from the Latin, Latin word personae, which which the Greek world didn't really have an exact um, equivalent to that. So mm. when, when the whole debate about the nature of God is translated from Greek into Latin, then it creates new nuances and that, that are even more confusing. So language is limited, and so we're, we're challenged by the words and languages that we have, but the words help us maintain certain important boundaries when we talk about God. So the idea of being versus persons helps us because we don't talk, we would never talk about there are three beings, mm-hmm. we would, and it's also improper to talk about one, the one person of God. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, maybe I've been talking that way for so many years that I've got comfortable with it, right. but, um, but in my mind that helps me to maintain those key boundaries. So we say, in the, the ancient church had a formula, they said, we, w- we must never divide the essence, and we must never confuse the persons. Mm. So divide the essence would be to say, no, there's more than one God, there's three gods. To confuse the persons would be to say, oh, the Father is the Son, the Son is the Spirit, and, and not to maintain the distinction between those centers of personality, mm. we could say, within the one being of God. Yeah, but even when you just use that word right there, personality, that 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 kind of illustrates it's not person. When we say the distinction in persons, it's not just personality. Right. Although we can still use it like you did right there, but we have to be careful not to say, "Oh, it's just that God has split personalities." Right. That right? that's a bad analogy to it. <laughs> like, yeah, you have like this multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Right, disassociative states and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. So, and again, for me, I don't know. For some reason, I'm comfortable with paradox. I'm I'm wired in such a way that I'm comfortable with paradox because I trust God's word, and and the more I've re- you know I've read God's word for 50 years. Well, for a little bit under 50 years, and and as I read God's word, it is so clear to me. And when I talk to people who either just have a very simplistic view of God, a lot of times it's because they don't really read God's Word. Exactly. So what I want to say is, no, read the Bible. If you read the Bible, you're going to see that God really, there's no doubt that the oneness of God is there. Mm -hmm. There is one God, the Shema from last episode. There is only one God. There are not three gods. There are not multiple gods. There's only one God, and yet this other truth is still is still clearly affirmed in Scripture that that God exists in some way in in a threeness, because God right. the Father is, is spoken of as deity, mm-hmm. God the Son is spoken of as deity, and God the Holy Spirit is spoken of as deity. So clearly, 
there's a there's a threeness to the God, and so I can imagine in the councils they're saying, how do we, what words can we use, our finite language, mm-hmm. our finite words? And so they settled on this, what we would say personhood represents the threeness, and being or essence represents the oneness, and I'm good with that. Yeah, and it's a great point, Brian, because what you just described illustrates that the origin of this whole idea of the Trinity doesn't come from philosophical musing. Mm. People weren't going like, oh, you know, let's create this idea of this philosophical God that meets these, uh, these intellectual criteria and so forth. No, they're, they're grappling with the actual data of Scripture, uh, the life of Jesus recorded, and the, the things that Jesus did and claimed for himself. We'll talk about that more next time. And, and the Holy Spirit and all of the evidence of the Holy Spirit's deity. Again, we'll talk about that in more detail next time. But they're grappling with the data of Scripture and how do, I, how do we make sense out of these things that the Bible is telling us? And, the, and so, well, let's keep talking about that. And over the first three centuries, the church kept talking about that and, and saying, well, what about, let's try this one on. Well, that doesn't really fit all of the data of Scripture. Well, let's modify that or refine that mm-hmm. some more until they finally came up with the language that, that could best, and the formulation that could best pull together everything that the Bible actually teaches. And even as you say that, Ross, I could hear some skeptics in our crowd saying, oh, that's just... So, so people are trying to put this... This is man-made, right? People are trying to make sense of this and put it together. I just would say to that person, don't, don't judge someone else who has a speck in their eye when you have a log in yours. Like, Would we have done any better if we were in the council? I mean, here we are today with yeah. the benefit of standing on the shoulders of, of other theologians who've helped us make sense of this. We're still struggling to make sense of it that doesn't that doesn't disprove that doesn't mean that the trinity is a man-made concept that doesn't mean that christianity is a man-made religion that's too simplistic to say that god is bigger than we are we said this in episode 1 god is bigger than we are mm-hmm. he is different than we are and that's good that that's why we worship him because we're not going to be like him we're not going to be a God someday. He is utterly different. He's holy. He's set apart. He's different than we are. And so personally, I love the fact that we have to wrestle with this. I want my kids to wrestle with this. And I want them to remember as they wrestle with this and try to wrap their mind around it, I want them to remember how, how good and great God is. Mm-hmm. And this is a good thing that God yeah. exists as one being yeah. in three... Per- I mean, yeah. it's a true thing. It's a true thing, but it's a good thing it's because good thing. it is true, because it is who God is. Yeah. And it makes him wor- so worthy mm-hmm. of our worship. We're not worthy of worship. God is. We are not beings that should be worshipped, but God is a being who, who mm-hmm. can be worshipped. And so part of our worship is even trying to understand him, I would right. say. I agree. It's worship yeah. of the mind, you might say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when people try to make this easier to understand, they sometimes wander into heresy. So let's, let's call out the heretics in the crowd today, Ross, right? So one common error that denies the Trinity is the fallacy of what we call modalism. And here's what a modalist would say, that there's one God, but this one God appears in three different forms. Not three persons, but three different forms or three different modes. Right. So this is I'm going to be chair I'm going to be charitable here because I realize the average person on the street who's trying to use those analogies we talked about right. they're just trying to figure God out exactly right but and, and even historically the first modalists 
in the early centuries of the Christian church were just were trying to figure out this paradox. We're trying to uphold, in fact, trying to uphold something of value, the oneness of God. Now, the thing is, is that as, as we understand the full revelation of God and we can formulate it in these different ways, then the challenge comes be- when a person says, no, I understand what you're saying, but I reject it mm. in favor of this. So that, mm-hmm. to me, is the problem. That's, that's the real heretic. It's not the person who's struggling to understand and can't come up with a better way to do it. It's the person who, who does understand the Trinity and rejects it for some a formulation like modalism. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you're listening today, don't feel, don't be embarrassed, because again, I even admitted that I have used um, metaphors that missed, because really, really there's no metaphor that works. Right. There's no, I, ha, I still have never found a metaphor that properly expresses this idea of one one being in three persons. There's right. there's ways, there there might be some thing, illustrations that might help people understand they it. They could point in the right direction. Uh-huh. But all of them break down at some point. Yeah, that's right. Like, like for example, the H two O. Yeah. Right. So, so H two O is an example of modalism, right? Right. It's, because so modalism says sometimes God is acts as the Father, sometimes God acts as the Son, sometimes God acts as the Holy Spirit. There's mm-hmm. one God who sometimes is in the form of the Father, sometimes in the form of the Son, sometimes in the form or the mode of being like the Holy Spirit. Right. So. That's, so water, sometimes it's steam, sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's liquid. And so that is basically modalism. I would say that, that I was a chemistry major. There's yeah. one point at a certain temperature and pressure Triple point. all three of those exist at yeah. the same time. Yeah, but that's still not quite the same thing as the Trinity. Really. Yeah, so. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm a math guy, you're a chemistry guy, so you have more right to speak of that. Okay, so but, but again, here's where then when someone would when if some there are some non-Christians who push against the Trinity and they because they think that the biblical conception of the Trinity is modalism. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not. It's not. So I've had I've had again Mormon friends come to me and say, "Ha ha, I got gotcha. Look at we looked at the passage earlier. Look at um, you know Matthew three. Look at the baptism of Jesus. See the Trinity is wrong because how could God be there? Um, Jesus is there. God the Father is there. God the Holy Spirit. Gotcha. The Trinity must be wrong. Their assumption is their misunderstanding is that the Trinity purports modalism, but right. it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So the, the because it, because the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. We, right. we, we maintain the distinction of the persons. Yeah, and so again, if you've, my answer to that when somebody says that, my answer to that is I patiently explain the Trinity. The Trinity is this, one God, three persons, one being, three persons. And so what's happening in Matthew 3 is that you're seeing the persons of God, and the persons of God are distinct. The persons of God are not the same. God the Father is not the same person as God the Son, who's not the same person as God the Holy Spirit. So what we see in Matthew 3 is the is the distinction, and again, we can say this, is the distinction in the persons of God, even though there's no distinction in their being. Right. That's why it's important to maintain that language of being, versus persons to help us to keep that straight. All right, so it's not just at the baptism of Jesus that we see this refutation of modalism, but the Bible actually also clearly shows 
the Son in relationship with the Father. You know, we have Jesus suffering at the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So again, this, you know, texts like this wouldn't make sense if the Father and the Son are merely forms that God takes rather than real persons, right? Right. So you, one way to think about modalism is to say, okay, you've maybe seen a movie where one actor plays a lot of diff- all the different roles. Mm-hmm. I think like Eddie Murphy did this in a couple <laughs> yeah. different movies. I yeah. don't know. Um, where they play multiple roles. Well, so sometimes the actor is this character. Sometimes the actor is this other character, just one actor. Mm. Well, those, those characters that the actor's playing aren't real persons. They're roles only. And so those characters don't actually interact with each other. Um, and so modalism is kind of like, well, sometimes God puts on this costume, the father costume, or this mask, the father's mask. And, and so there's no real relationship between the father and the son. Um, but what we see in the Bible in that passage, for example, where Jesus is saying, Abba, Father, there's an expression of intimacy between the son and the father. There's an expression of submission, surrender between the Son and the Father. And so that doesn't really make sense if it's just different modes. Yeah, in fact, modalism in general overall denies this important idea that relationship exists eternally within the Trinity, not just Father and Son, but also Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But in modalism, how can love be an essential quality of God's nature? Before creation, there was nothing for the modalist God to love, right? Because from the foundation of, even before the foundation of the world, it, it, before before human history began, God always existed. So if, if God is one and there's not three persons, then then how can God love in, in a world, in a pre-world like that, right? Right. And so we're going to come back in another session to talk about really that how this is such an important element of the understanding the Trinity and its implications for our lives. The fact that the Trinity is continually, eternally in relationship, mm. in community together. And so really, if there's one God and there's not three actual centers of personhood or persons, then this one God, how could that be a God of love? if there's no object of love. Mm. And so if God created humanity and created the universe in order to have an object of love, well, then God wasn't complete before the creation. Mm. Then God was missing something before the creation. And so the the Trinity concept really answers that by, by saying that love has eternally existed between the three persons of the Trinity even long before God ever made anything and will eternally exist um, and so, so love then can be seen as an essential component of God's character because of this uh, distinction between the persons. Yeah, and that leads actually to one final point, at least for today's conversation. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity becomes very practical for us. We, you know, every every episode we want to make sure that we're ending on a practical note. This isn't. This isn't just you know um, doctrine. This isn't just intellectual pursuit. We're talking about here the 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 nature of God, the under, rightly understanding the character and the nature of God actually impacts our everyday lives. And here's how it does this for us today: when we can relate personally with each member of the Trinity as we discover their unique roles 
in creation. Just three examples today. Let's finish with we we can as we understand their roles, their unique roles in creation, in salvation, and then even something as practical as prayer. That when we really rightly understand, wrap our mind around the persons of the Trinity, then it really does impact our relationship because because Christianity isn't just a religion. It's not just a bunch of beliefs that we affirm and sign off on. Christianity is a relationship with a triune God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in just a quick example of creation, we won't dwell on that much, but all three members of the Trinity are involved in creation as seen in the Old and New Testaments, uh, but they each seem, seem to have a different role in creation. So it's, it's the Father's initiative, mm-hmm. and, but he creates, it says, it creates by the Father, created through the Son, that we saw that there's a number of places where you see that in the New Testament in particular. And then in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Spirit was moving on the waters. And so the Spirit creates the power, is the power or the energy through which the initiative of the Father and the action of the Son is completed in creation. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot more we could say about that. But we want to talk, probably, it's, it gets more to the point when we talk about, say, salvation or even prayer. Yeah, and again, as you're listening to this, we're just giving these three examples. You can dive more into this as you have conversations with a mentor, or small group, or with your family around this. But so, so the roles. We'll get into this more next week. But the role, the unique roles of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and creation, like you just said, you can, if you want to look at some scripture for that, Genesis one, verses one and two, John chapter one, verse three. So let's talk then about salvation. So in salvation the three persons have unique roles. Just kind of like creation, mm-hmm. the Father initiated the plan mm-hmm. of salvation. Mm-hmm. Right? So it seems to be that, as we read Scripture, it seems to be that the father, one of the Father's overall roles is to initiate mm-hmm. creation, right. salvation. It yep. was the Father's plan. The Son died on the cross to accomplish it, mm-hmm. right? So the Father didn't die on the cross, right? but the Son died on the cross, so it was the Son's unique role to die on the cross to, the, to accomplish the plan of salvation. And then the Spirit brings forth the fruit of salvation in people. And Ross, I think a, a scripture passage that's really helpful for people, in fact, I'd encourage you to go pull this up and look at this for yourself. Mm-hmm. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 really explains all of this together. I love this verse when we're trying to understand the Trinity. Peter writes, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Right. So you see, there's the initiative of the Father. He knew, he chose in advance. There, you see the role of the Son. He, he died to cleanse us of our sins, and then the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us or makes us holy helps us to live move live into the transformation of salvation in our lives. Yeah, and again, what for 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 worshipers of God out there who are listening to this, what's what's great about this is it helps us when we understand this and maybe open our eyes to some of these truths that maybe a more simplistic faith never really understood. It just helps us to worship God. It helps us to relate to God. We can say we can thank God the Father for choosing us mm-hmm. for for initiating this plan of salvation. We we thank Jesus. We do this in our songs, too, right. at church. We thank Jesus for... How many songs do we have where we thank Jesus for the cross and yeah. for his death and his resurrection? And then we we obviously... I, I think this is the most misunderstood. Uh, this is the forgotten God of the Trinity mm-hmm. as the Holy Spirit. I think Christ, Christians don't understand and appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to 
to apply the work of Jesus to our lives and to help us to live lives that honor God mm -hmm. right, in response. Yeah, so we can focus our worship if we understand the, the Trinitarian roles. And it's, it's uh, legitimate to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they're all deity, right. as we'll learn more about next time. Yeah. Okay, so we, we relate personally to each member of the Trinity because of the, their unique roles in creation, their unique roles in salvation. Let's do one more. What about in prayer? When we think about prayer, all three persons of the Trinity are present when we pray. Mm -hmm. we got to keep that in sure, mind. because there's one God. Yeah. Right. So we, but typically, the Bible teaches us to pray to the Father through the Son, mm -hmm. and in the power of the Holy Spirit. If, you, if you're taking notes, here's some scripture you can write down, Matthew 6, 9, praying to the Father, through the Son, Hebrews 4, 16, Hebrews 10, 19, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Right. And we, let me break that down just a little bit more, uh, because the, the Bible shows us that, well, Jesus first in the, in the Lord's Prayer said, you know, address the, our Father who art in heaven. So that's where we get the idea of praying to the Father. Mm -hmm. But but some of the passages you look at in Hebrews chapter 10 or Hebrews chapter 4 show that Jesus is the one who opens the way to the Father so that we can pray, so that we can approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. That's, that's the role of Jesus, our mediator. And then the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit prays when we, for us when we don't know how to pray. And, and it also talks about how the Holy Spirit is the one in Romans 8 who, who allows us to cry, Abba, Father. In other words, gives us this sense of intimate relationship with God as Father that we can talk to Him like a, like a child talking to their dad. Yeah, let me read that, Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. It says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. And now we call Him Abba, Father, isn't that interesting? That's just mm -hmm. what Jesus called mm -hmm. him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, right. And in verse 16, it says, For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. I love that. This whole thing then kind of comes full circle because the Holy Spirit brings us into an intimate relationship with God as Father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's the, there's the roles of the Trinity that will really allow us to know God deeply and intimately, and ultimately, God desires that we know Him. That we, He doesn't want us to just leave it at an intellectual exercise. We, we talked about worship with the mind, but it goes beyond grappling with understanding the formulation of the Trinity, because God's desire is that we do know Him intimately and come to Him as children to a Father. So there's only one God, yet He exists in three persons, and understanding this rightly helps us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Thanks for listening. And again, if you want to find discussion questions and short video to go along with this for your family, for your small group, or to talk about this with a mentor, you can find it all at pursuegod.org forward slash Trinity. Next week, we're going to be talking about the deity of the three. We're going to be jumping into all of this stuff in more detail. So we hope that you'll join us next time on the Pursue God podcast.